HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste-is-everything, cost-be-damned attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and today we have a very special guest. Um, we are going to be talking about the wines of Cune in Rioja, uh, one of the great historic estates in Rioja. Um, some of the greatest wines I've ever had out of the region have been uh, Cune wines, and we have uh, Victor here who, who runs the operations at CUNY. Victor, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us about, uh, about what you do at well, CUNY. Joe, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, Victor Urrutia, that sounds very English, I apologize for that. I'm actually Spanish. Um, I'm in charge of CUNY. I'm fifth generation, no less, running the company. We were founded in 1879 and have been making Rioja wine ever since. Very happy to be here. Thank you, Joe. Now, I'm trying to plan for maybe a future life of mine, and, and how do I get born into a uh, multi-generational, legendary winemaking family? How, how does that work out? <laughs> I, it's one of these flukes in life, you know, it's a privilege, and it's, it's a great job to have. I'm very lucky, very fortunate. But, you know, it has its, it has its things. It's not all <laughs> about tasting wine and having a great time. Um, it, I guess it's just one of these caretaker things, you know, that... On my watch, things have to be done properly, and we have to look at we have to look after the company to make sure that it's handed down in in, in the right shape, um, and that's pretty much what we have to do. So, it doesn't so, give you much freedom, I guess. But. but from my understanding, the the expectation wasn't always that you would be in charge of the of of the winery. You, you told me yesterday we did we did a tasting, and you're saying that you were in uh, in London. You really grew up in London for a lot of your life before mm. moving back to Spain. Yeah, that's correct. I. I didn't really expect ever to have to work at Cune. I'm Cune, it's, like I said, you know, it's a fifth-generation company, so very extensive family involved, especially as you would expect in Spain, you know, Christian country, uh, very family-based. So hundreds, literally, of cousins and uncles and were involved in the company. I had no expectation of working there at all. I was quite happy doing my own thing. Um, 
tried different career paths. I actually studied law. So I'm, I'm really trained as a lawyer. And I was sort of comfortable doing what I was doing. I was working in a consulting firm. And um, I was living, I was actually living in Brazil at the time. I was very happy there. And I got a call from my father who said, listen, your uncle's the current chairman of Kune and he's not doing great health-wise. He, he's thinking about retiring. Would you, like, would you be interested in, in doing this? And at first I said no. And he nagged me for the next six months, and I, I exceeded at the end. So I said, fine, I'll do it for a year. And it's been 12 years now, so once you get started, um, you just get dragged in. It's like, it's like the godfather. <laughs> now, I, I picture, I, you know, I've never visited your estate, but I picture there being some big, long hallway with all of the ancestors who have run the estate, large portraits, and then kind of staring down at you saying, you better not mess this up. Do you know, we don't really do that. We're sort of very low-key, so we're very humble and, and down to earth. So we don't have that, but there is that expectation, yeah, absolutely. And, and we do have, I have this painting from my grandmother staring at me where I sit in my office in, in Madrid where I have my sales office to, to remind I think my father put that there, so to, to remind me that this is, you know, you've you got to do things the right way. Um, but yeah, absolutely, you know, there's an, there's an expectation that things have to be done in a certain way. But to be honest, you know, the people running Cuneo before me, my, my forefathers, they didn't care too much about what we were doing outside of the winery. They, they just, what they cared about is just making wine as best as they could. And that was that, you know, they didn't, they didn't bother visiting the markets. They didn't bother going to the US to, to explain the wines. They just, you know, we were very lazy in that sense. You know, we could sell everything. We sold everything we could back home pretty much a bit in, in England. Um, and we just didn't care about making our wines known, which is a shame, really. I think it's it's lazy and it's it's complacent and and and, and you know it's it, they had a very they worked very hard, but they 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 had a, a very different view on things. You know, they didn't think about they're very introverted. I think, yeah, and that's I think that's great. It's cute if you want, but um, but we need to be sure that we're out there showing our wines to to wine enthusiasts, and you know, to just show it to the ones back home is is short-sighted at best uh, we, we need to we need to be up front showing the, the wines that we make yeah you know it reminds me of uh the an issue with a lot of emerging wine regions here in the united states where they desire to have a, at least a national presence uh mm. um but yet they sell all the winery locally out of out of the door while the wine right out of the door mm. and if you're not investing in getting out there and, and, and marketing your wines to a larger audience, you're never going to have that kind of presence. Obviously, this is on a, a grander scale that you're talking about. But, you know, when you look at wineries and what's available out there, it, it's getting more polarized, I think, or at least in Europe. You're seeing these huge corporations that are, that are, you know, big companies, and some of them are successful and some are not, but they're basically corporations. It's, it's a huge company, and I'm sure they make, they make very good wine. And, um, but, you know, they have marketing departments, they have sales departments, they have... It's basically run as, as any large corporation. And then on the other extreme, you have these small family properties. And typically, it's, it's a husband and wife operation with... So the wife's not getting paid for work. It's basically the, 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 it's in, in indentured labor. And the kids are working there as well. And they're probably not getting paid too much either. And it's all for the, for the, for the sake of the family. And those, those kind of companies, I guess we started as that. We grew... Those kind of companies can strive because in the end, you know, they, they cut costs to minimum. It's just them doing their thing. And often it's hard for these people to, I don't know, to spend a month in the U.S. traveling and, and presenting their wines because, A, you can't leave the wine for that long. You, somebody has to look after it. B, it's expensive. And C, not that many people are prepared to pay attention to you. So 
in the end you could be successful but just be you know being very very focused and very targeted and very niche and mm. just maybe coming to new york or brooklyn every so often selling your wines explaining your wines and then going back home and selling a bit back home and then you're done yeah you're in good shape um but we've been around for a long time and we're bigger than that you know we're not we're not just a, a, a father and son operation we, we, unfortunately or fortunately there's many more of us involved so we, we kind of have an obligation to be to be out there and and showing our wines to everybody across the US and across Asia. There's not really that many markets, when you think about it, that are interested in, in fine wine. You know, there's there's large chunks of the world that unfortunately just can't afford these wines. And just some people just aren't interested. So, you know, once you narrow it down, you keep seeing, I keep seeing the same people from the same wineries wherever I go. So we're, we're, all, we're all chasing the same, you know, the, the same people, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So... Is it sort of an economic mandate now that you have to focus on marketing, whereas prior there were there was much less competition. There were there were fewer wineries, there were fewer wine regions that were that were exporting internationally, yeah. and now there's a lot more competition. So it's all the more important that you get out there. Or is this more of a, a thing of trying just to establish an international reputation and and get people to understand the region more? And, and, and I think it's a bit of both. You know, we we see ourselves. Our, our name is Kune, which is, is is a bit of a mouthful, and it's even worse when you when you spell out the whole name because Kune is really an acronym. Um, so our name is is complicated, and, and so and we have a story to tell, and, and it's complicated as well. Or it's it's it's, um, but we see ourselves as ambassadors for for Spain. You know, our our, our crest, our shield is is the flag of Spain. It's always been that way since the nineteenth century. So it's relatively straightforward. And sometimes people say, you know, which is your wine again? I'll just tell them, you know, it's the one with the Spanish flag. Um, but just actually flying the flag for Spain, I see that as a responsibility because Spain has some great wines. Uh, just people don't know too much about them. I guess we also make some wines that aren't that good. Um, but it's a question of, of, of showcasing what's good, yeah, making sure that people are aware of that. Um, so that's that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I guess it, it is more competitive. There's, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of wineries in the U.S. There's literally thousands of wineries in, in Spain and France and Italy. And... Everybody tries to do to do a, a great job. So, um, if you're not present, just because making a good wine by itself is not enough, I think you need to, you need to be showing it to people. Otherwise, you know, people have people are busy and they have short attention spans. So they're going to more often than not they're going to be drinking and presenting the wines that are placed in front of them. You know, the ones that catch their attention. And it's a shame if that if it's not the best ones. So. Mm-hmm. We, we just we need to do that, I guess, yeah. Michter's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small, from careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost be damned, taste is everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food and Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. Yeah, you make a, a point to note that the label has the, the Spanish flag on it. Was that a decision from the uh, from the start of the winery, or is that uh, something that happened sometime after? And then what uh, what was the state of the winery in the, the post-World War II era? Uh, mm. 
to you know to the 1970s. Well, that whole time. Yeah, <laughs> I think my my forefathers. I'm, I'm very proud of this. You know, they didn't call the the, the company by a family name. Um, the, the like I said, you know, they're very sort of introverted, and they didn't want to show off or anything. And also, you know, when you have protected families, that in the end, the family name, the original name, might change as you go in time. You know, you have. In my case, I'm I'm through Kune because of my grandmother. So you know her name and her descendants. The name changed as well. So if you have a name on the company, I think that's great. It's terrific. But sometimes the the, the names change, so you, you, it, it doesn't become as resonant anymore. Um, and the fact that we have the Spanish flag and and Kune really stands for Wine Company from the North of Spain. So it's it's very anonymous. And sometimes people get confused and they think again, you know, it's a corporation or they think it's um it's a co-op. Sometimes I've heard that a lot. Um, but the way I explain this is, no, you know, we're, we're a family company and um, the name is Cune and the, and the flag or the crest is a Spanish flag and it transcends us. You know, we're here, we're, we're passing by um, in whenever in the future, be somebody else explaining the wines. And it won't matter because what matters is the wines. I think that's the key thing, you know. Yesterday we tasted wines going back to the 60s, wines from the 70s and the 80s. These wines weren't made by me. I wasn't born when these wines were made. Um, but here I am explaining them to you. And hopefully in the future, who knows, there'll be some other guy here uh, presenting wines from you know, 2010. And these wines were made under my, my stewardship. Um, I'll be long gone. And hopefully the wines will be looking good. So I, I, I kind of like that, you know, the fact that it's a project, a project or whatever you want to call it. But something that, goes, that transcends us and goes beyond us. So the Spanish flag hopefully will always be there. Spain will always exist as a country, hopefully. And hopefully we'll be flying that flag and, and, and presenting our wines. Because sometimes you see a lot of amazing wineries and amazing wines that are made by one guy and once he's gone you know things just sometimes they, they fizzle out they, they just aren't the same even if the name's still there on, on, on the door um, things change because uh, it was just him it was that guy or that woman doing this thing yeah and once they're gone the, the magic is lost and I think the, the key to success um, the really the key to, to lengthy success I think is to be able to transcend what some guy has, what one person has done yeah and how do you ensure that when you go from winemaker to the next winemaker, obviously the estate's been around since the late 1870s, right? Hmm. That that vision is maintained. Well, we're a traditional winemaker, and there's no way we could change that. Even if we decided to do things differently, we would find it very hard to do that. You know, we have our wines, for instance, they spend a lot of time in barrel, Um we tried making wines without long time in barrel. We just didn't know how to do them properly. So, um, if you have sort of systems in place, and you, and, you, and you, when you're very traditional, you do you do things the same way all the time. And sometimes you don't question them, which is which is bad. You should do that. Um, but if you have a way of doing things, and it's been that way for over a hundred years, um, and people join the company and they progress through the company, and, and when they leave, you have somebody that's kind of doing the same thing that they, the other guy was doing. I think then you're okay. You know, you're just you're just continuing doing what you're doing. It's like these great restaurants that you see someplace that are doing always the same thing, and you think, well, how do they do that? You know, it's because everybody knows how to do this, how to do what they have to do, so it just keeps on going. Yeah, and w- w- the, the flames that, that that come up and then and then fade out, th- those can be amazing. But if you haven't got the right people doing everything as they should, then that that can happen. Yeah. So I guess we've been lucky that. We, you know, we've, we've had, I think, five winemakers for over the past 130-odd years. They, they stayed for a long time. Yeah? You know, when I joined Kune as, as an employee, when I was drafted in, um, 
everybody who was running the, the the key departments and the the key everybody in the key places they'd been there for longer than I'd, since before I'd been born you know so they they knew what they were doing or at least I don't know just out of habit I think they knew how to do things I think habit and there's enough shared role. knowledge and enough systems in place that yes and I, I think your point is true in a small winery if someone does everything and doesn't write down all the systems yeah. if they're if they're gone then all that knowledge goes with them but, I don't know if you know, we don't have systems as such you know we're, we're terrible with, with IT and we're terrible with management overall I think you know we don't have we don't have really our systems are you know from the Paleolithic they're terrible but at least at least we have people that do the things that they do maybe they can't explain them very well but at least they're doing them. So people are just doing what they do. You know, I think that's so one of these restaurants that you see when you go to the south of Italy that everybody does something. I'm sure they have nothing written down. It just happens. Yeah. yeah. So you characterized Cune as a traditional winery. Um, anytime that Rioja is, uh, is discussed in wine circles here, it seems that the, the, the concept, concept of traditional versus modern uh, is is a, a kind of hot button topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like most of the wineries in in the in those spheres would probably fall in the more modern character uh, yeah. characteristic. Do you think that this debate of modern versus traditional, the, just to lay it out for for the listener, modern being uh, maybe more uh, riper, using use of French oak and, and newer mm-hmm. French oak, more technology and vinification maybe in the vineyard as well, to make these kind of cleaner, less spicy, rustic, less earthy wines, more fruit and, uh, and, and that sort of thing, and more alcohol, as opposed to the, the older style, the more age-worthy wines, um, maybe, maybe lighter in color, lighter in alcohol. Do you think that this, this, this debate is, uh, is overstated, that, uh, that, there, that there is less difference between the, the extremes? Do you think that there are, are there really many traditional wineries even left? Um, mm-hmm. It seems that you know, some of your wines are, can, can be considered that, maybe Lopez de Heredia. There's probably uh, some that we, we don't get here in the, in the U.S. That would, be, that would be considered traditional, but we, I, I don't see too many that I would consider in the yeah, traditional I mean, area. I think there's, there's extremes in both, yeah? And those would probably never meet and probably never touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned very, many different things there. Um, there's not that many traditional wineries because there's not that many that have been around for over 100 years. And I think by definition, tradition means you've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> I think it's good to have debate and it's good to have different points of view and different ways of doing things. It means it's stimulating and, you know, people are thinking and doing things. So I think that's good. You know, when, when nothing is challenged and nothing is no, nothing is, is, is done differently, then I don't know. I think, I think that's good, you know. Um, and I think... Modern winemaking, as as as, you, as you've defined it, it, I think that's that's a good definition. You know, all, all the, the extra fruit, the extra alcohol, the, the newer oak. I think in some cases it can be good. You know, it has some good things going for it. And a lot of the modern uh, winemakers that I like, um, their focus is not so much on you know making this super extracted wine with a lot of alcohol. Mm. The point is, I am harvesting a specific plot and I'm reflecting it in this wine. Yeah, this wine comes from this place, and this is how I think it should be made. I, I kind of like that, you know. Um, th- those, those I think, in my books, would be the good modernists. Um, and there's, again, you know, there's not that many traditional winemakers. But if you, if you just somebody is just traditional for the sake of being traditional, you know, and and, and presenting wines that are sort of thin and, and vinous and, and dusty, and that in itself, I don't think is good. You know, I think y- you need a story and, and you need a philosophy of making things. And 
if your philosophy is I'm traditional, I will do things as I've, as we've always done them and I will have lengthy barrel aging and the wines will be delicate and, and elegant and be able to age, then to me that is fantastic. And to be honest, I think we lean more, more towards that than, than anything else because it's where we come from. But I don't know, is it too much to ask to have the best of both worlds? I mean, that's what I think we should be doing, you know, not, not just being radical and going to, to an extreme just for the sake of doing it, but actually, I, I guess whether you're from Rioja or from Burgundy or, or Bordeaux, ultimately you want to be able, in, in my books anyway, you want to make a wine that reflects its origins. Um, if you're making a wine that, that, is, that is polished and well-made but could come from anywhere, I wouldn't say you failed, but in the end you're doing something that, is, that, is, that maybe doesn't have too much of a soul. And if it's a corporation and a large company and a large multinational doing that, then maybe it's okay. You know, and some, most people, I guess, most people maybe don't pay attention that they don't care. You know, they're, just, they're just having a glass of wine. But if, you, if you're dedicating your life to this and you want to do it right, I think you, you should do that. You, you, should have, you should reflect where the wine comes from and it should have authenticity and it should have character. And I think both the modernists and, and the, the, I guess the true modernists, if you want, if I can take the liberty of using that term, um, and, and the true traditionalists, they, they both try and do that. And also there's another thing which is interesting. Um, if you taste some modern wines from maybe 20 years ago, Many of these wineries were made 20 years ago, but um, if you taste the, the, the very first vintages, and you t- if you taste them now, um, they be- I wouldn't say they become traditional, but they kind of converge towards the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah? They, once the, because the fruit, <laughs> this is one of the things that, you know, the fruit will fade, regardless of where you, if it's from Napa or from Bordeaux or from Rioja, the, food will, the fruit will fade. That's going to happen. It's a fact of life. Yeah? So once the fruit fades, what's left? That, that's the question we should, we should be asking ourselves. If it's just going to be, you know, tannin and alcohol, then it's going to be a brutal experience and it's not going to be pleasant, yeah? So you should be thinking. You know, I was at the Grand Tour yesterday at Wine Spectator um, and I tasted these amazing wines and I tasted th- this this um, this wine from, from the US that, that was had beautiful fruit. It was 2011 vintage and the cork was massive. It was the size of, of my biggest finger. And I thought, well, why do they... And I'm sure very expensive. Why do they do that? Because the wine was 2011 vintage. It was probably bottled maybe a year, two years ago, max. Um, and it was meant to be drunk now and young. So why are you putting this cork as if the wine is meant to last for the next 50 years? And I guess maybe the explanation is, well, you know, the wine is, is great now, but you, maybe you should keep it and, and drink it in the future. But if all you have is, if the main thing showing the wine is the fruit, once that fades, what's going to be left? Um, and in our case, our wines... Sure, drink them young if you want, you know, savor the fruit. It won't be as powerful as the fruit from Napa, that's, I can guarantee you that. It won't be as expressive as that. Uh, it would be much more delicate and, and subdued. Um, but if you keep the wine, and if, you, if, you, if you're patient enough to, to keep the wine or to find a wine with bottle in it, I think that would be a fantastic experience because then you will see many things developing in, in, in the glass and the bottle. And we, we truly believe that for a wine to be, to be great, it needs to be able to age, you know, to develop complexity and elegance and these are the things that we strive for i think maybe many modern producers they, they, they strive for that as well so. and uh and i can attest to the fact that your wines age uh fantastically yet just yesterday I had the uh had a 1962 um that was as young as uh you know uh, 
could have you you if you blind tasted me and told me it was a two thousand and two, I would have <laughs> I would have felt that that was uh, quite plausible. Well, see that we did things. Some, we did some things right anyway in the past. That's good. Uh, when, that. when when you get together with your other winemaker friends in Rioja, other than what what are some of the the topics that you guys talk about? What what are the big issues for you right now? Well, we all lie and. Yes, so how sales? And if they say they're doing okay, then it probably means they're not doing okay. If they say they're doing badly, then that probably means they're doing okay. But in the end, you talk about wine, but nowadays, which I think is a good thing, in the past, people didn't they didn't visit the markets. Many most winemakers in Rioja didn't speak English. Um, they had no need. They maybe spoke some French because they'd gone to, to school in, in France. Um, but you spoke about, you know, the, the, the vineyards and you spoke about how you're doing things. And now we speak much more about, you know, I, I just got back from Brooklyn or I'm, I'm going to Tokyo next week. Yeah. So there's, there's that buzz going on, I think, with many, especially the younger ones, which I think is a great thing. Yeah. Um, but there's no hiding from the fact that our major market is, is Spain and Spain is going through a downturn, although things are looking up now. So our domestic market is, is, is not nearly as good as it had been in the past. And it's a wake up call. So we're all sort of doing stuff outside. And and that's good, yeah. And a lot of a lot of the younger winemakers they've done, they've had jobs in Australia and in the US. So they, a lot of them want to do things and change things. So there's, a, there's always that debate, you know, that should I preserve how I'm how I'm looking after my my, my vineyards? Do I do I go from from goblet plantation to, to trellis plantation? Because you know I've seen guys in Barossa do it, and it turns out okay. But my father disagrees. He thinks we should be doing everything by the book. So there's that going on all the time. There's good debates, I think. Yeah. Good. And uh, you, so you oversee three separate wineries um, mm-hmm. that are all sort of medium-sized wineries, right? Contino, yeah, there's Imperial, Contino, Imperial, and Vignorel, and then we have Cune, which is our, our regular sort of entry-level wine, which we're very proud of. But yeah, I mean, Contino, it's, uh, it's sixty hectares, so I guess it's mid-sized. Yeah, it's it's you don't see properties that large normally in in, in Spain or in Rioja. Um, it wouldn't be infrequent in, in in California, I think, or in Bordeaux. Certainly, would be completely infrequent in in, in Burgundy, um, but it's a good size. Yeah, um, Vignerelle is is about for the Grand Reserva, which is the flagship bottling. It's about fifty thousand bottles, so it's not too much. You know, it's an Imperial is bigger than that. Imperial um, tops we would do for the for Top Cuvée fifty thousand bottles, and for the Reserva we do about one hundred and fifty, sometimes a bit less. Um, it's it's I guess it's what we can produce. It, it would be great if we could do more, um, but we just don't have the fruit to be able to do it. So it's we're limited by by the constraints of what we can what we can harvest. Uh, that's 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 the constraint that we have. Yeah, yesterday in our in our tasting, you mentioned that um, you're trying to use less and less uh, chemical fertilizers. Mm. Um, is that something that do you think it's possible at a winery of your size to completely eliminate that, um, or is that something that really has to be a very tiny, small boutique sort of winery. I don't know. I actually think you, you could argue that, that the larger companies should be able to do it better because they could afford to have more people in the vineyards mm-hmm. looking after them versus the smaller guy or, or somebody like us that, that you know, which is can't afford. You know, we need we need to we have a risk of iridium and we need to treat with, with sulfur. We just need to do it. Otherwise, we'll get iridium and we won't have any fruit. Um, and we just can't afford. I can't afford to have two hundred people out there just, just basically cleaning every single vine. So, I think it's more a question of, well, a how much money you can afford to spend, but also b, 
how you want to do things. We're not biodynamic. I have. This is for a different day to talk about biodynamic. Yeah, we can have you back on for another. Show. There's, there's plenty to talk about. But you know, I, I have I have conceptual and philosophical and religious issues with with biodynamic. Um, I think it has some good things going for it, mm-hmm. and I like to focus on those, the, the organic side of things, to minimize and, if possible, to eliminate treatments. Um, but in the end, some regions uh, are blessed with um, with with, uh, with fantastic climate, and, and, and they irrigate as well, and, and that makes it easier to avoid pests. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a place where it never rains and you're just irrigating, then you're probably in, in a very high altitude in South America, then it might be a lot easier to, to eliminate treatments. Um, but again, you're irrigating, which has its environmental issues as well. So it's it's hard to eliminate these things. I don't think it's a black and white thing, you know. We, we're minimizing them as much as we can. We stopped doing treatments for botrytis because we were very lucky that we didn't have much rain in, in harvest time. Um, but if, uh, if this year we have a lot of rain and we haven't treated as much as we should have done, then we'll be in trouble. That's the bottom line, I think. But we have reduced it a lot, I think, and... In the past, people just didn't care. It was it was just people didn't think it was bad for the environment, or they didn't care. They weren't concerned, and now we are. So at least that that the the, the, the frame of mind has changed a bit. I think, yeah. That that's really good to hear. Um, and then I just want to finish up talking about uh, finally getting to the wines themselves, because they really are extraordinary. That some of the greatest heights I've ever had in in Rioja have been have been your wines. Um, the extraordinarily age worthy. Really mm. elegant. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I noticed um, and and that we had spoken about before is that the wines seem to age quickly at the start mm-hmm. and then then stop and then the yeah. age the, the the maturation ends up being much much slower. Um, I would say that the sixty two I had was the the oldest probably the oldest Rioja I've ever had. And if you were to tell me confidently that that could age another forty fifty years, I would I would believe you potentially. Right? No, no, because uh, because yeah, I guess you had the chance to see wines from the sixties and seventies, eighties, nineties, and and from just now. But you're right that they develop perhaps more quickly than wines from from Burgundy or from Bordeaux at first. Then they, they they enter this sort of really slow phase, and they will just evolve very slowly. Um, I've done tastings, and going back to the thirties, twenties, and tens, and sure you have some bottles that are off. That could always happen. That by definition, it happens with very old vintages. But these wines can really age, and I guess the fact that the fruit is is, is suited to that, the the the, the Rioja Tempranillo, is suited to those lengthy agings. Um, the, the lengthy barrel agings that we that we that we submit the wines to mm-hmm. that that allows the wines to age for a long time as well. Um, they have tremendous acidity, which I think is a key component to any wine if you want it to age. And again, you have that you have that clash with with very modern wines or very wines that are made to please immediately. That they maybe don't have the, they don't have this acidity or they have basically no oak treatment at all. Um, and they're very flattering now. Um, maybe not too complex. Um, but certainly very flattering and very pleasing. And they probably even have a lot of sugar going on, so that makes it also um, very pleasant to drink, particularly mm-hmm. if you're new to wine and you just started in this. Um, but our, like I said, you know, our wines are, made, are built to last. They, they need to be able to, to, to become complex. Like, that's a key thing, you know. And, 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 that, and I think they do that. I think all great, to be honest, I think all great wines from anywhere whether they're from us or from Lopez, from, from Rioja, which I, which I think are fantastic wines, which I like very much. Um, but even the great wines from Bordeaux and Burgundy, or even from, from America, you know, I had, I've had Napa wines from, from the 70s, um, 
that have knocked my pants off. These wines are amazing. They were fantastic. Um, I don't know if they're making them in that style now. I would hope that they are. Um, but to me, that, that is what they should be striving for. Yeah? And, and so it's Na- not just Napa us. lost its way for a few years, and now they're, they're going back. They're oh. going back towards the way of the 70s. Glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> uh, well, Victor, it's been such a, such a pleasure, such an honor to have you on the show. Um, as I think you guys can all tell, I am a, a big fan of, of the wines. Uh, if you guys want to try the taste of real Rioja, the tradition of Rioja, Check out the Cune wines. Uh, my favorite line is the, the Imperial wines. I'll, pu- I'll put it out there. But thank they're, you. they're guess, all pretty spectacular. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Imperial is probably the one closest to our heart. So. Um, but what I encourage anybody that's out there that cares to listen um, is to come and see us. I, I know it's a trek and it's far away. Um, we get a ton of tourism in, in Spain, but they're all going to the beach to drink beer. Yeah, And, and that's, that's okay. It's fine. You know, I do that sometimes as well with my wife and kids. Um, but the, the interesting, the, really the... the the experience that really gets you is when you go and visit the, the vineyards and the properties. Um, so please come and see us in Rioja. Please come and see us. Pl- please come and see the, the Spanish vineyards, the good ones, because it's it's a fantastic experience. So come and see us. All right, you heard it. You heard it here. You had all the listeners have an invite to go visit Victor Acuna. Um All right, thank you so much for listening. This has been in the drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.